Hello, and welcome to Shakespeare, the roundtable discussion podcast where we talk about the classics. My name is Chase, and I will be your entirely quiet producer. Today, Beth and Cassie talk about Northanger Abbey and yet another installment of Ostentatious. If you like what you hear, come hang out with us at our Patreon's Discord. You can access it through the Patreon at patreon.com slash ghostlightmedia. You can also find our website with a link to the merch store at shakespearepod.com. And now, on with the show. I've got my office now about two-thirds of the way unpacked. The last time we recorded it was about one-third of the way unpacked. Oh, you've made good progress. Yeah, now my books are on shelves. I don't have enough shelves for my books. Because of, of the road trip that I took this past weekend to Dayton... How was it? It was good. The the you book, went, Did you go to the dollar? We went to the dollar swap. And thank you for preparing us for what we were going to see. Because of that, we didn't have... Our expectations were met. Um, it's fun. It's, it's just fun. Not- yeah. And I got like six or seven books there. Uh, but you kind of just have to browse the shelves and see what there is to grab. And then we went to Half Price Books. And that's where uh, the majority of my book shopping happened the one down by the dayton mall Uh uh-huh so is that was my high school hangout yeah so that if you uh you took a little tour there used to be uh barnes and nobles like two stores down from it and so we would go to half price books and then we'd go down to barnes and noble and i would buy bbc like renditions of Jane Austen. Yeah. And then we would go and sit at the cafe and look at all of our ill-gotten gains. <clears throat> drink. I didn't drink coffee at the time because it was high school, so it was Italian sodas. Right. So, it was so so cool. So cool that Half Price Books and I... I'm pretty yeah. sure there's multiple books here that still have the sticker from high right. price books on the back. Well, I came home with 16 new books for my bookshelves. But I've got like three boxes over there that aren't fitting on the shelves. So I don't so if- feel like my trip to Dayton is entirely the culprit. Um, I think it's because the way that this room is oriented. It's- I can't set my shelves up the same way that I had them in the old apartment. I was able to have a lot more like space on the top of the shelf to put books and like create additional shelving in that way and I can't do that in this room. Well, this is your forever home. Yeah. So, you can bolt bookshelves to the wall. I know. I'm very excited about that. One one apartment that we lived in, we put up bookshelves that lined all of the walls in an L. Uh-huh. And I think we had three or four, and we managed to fill them all up and still need to put folding bookshelves underneath them. Beautiful. God, I love books. Yeah, Speaking me too. of books. Speaking of books, we should introduce Jane ourselves. adaptations. I think they should know that they've tuned in for a rather raucous round of ostentatious. Yes, indeed. Offshoot of the Shakespeare podcast no beer involved i've got root beer that counts okay barks has bite barks has bite so i had to have a little bit of root beer barks does have bite <clears throat> no mineral actually, water no what no mineral water oh, from the hot God, springs no. see i don't believe i i don't believe in the waters of bath 
Um, I don't want to go sit Shocking. in a hot pool that a whole bunch of other weirdos have sat in. <laughs> Going back to the Roman times. Like, Bath is one of the oldest settlements in England. Yeah. Because so, of that. So who are we? We're ostentatious. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm Beth Roars. I assume if you're listening past <laughs> ostentatious, you know us. I'm Beth Roars. I'm Cassie Greenlee. And I just feel like we have to say our names because otherwise the husband will get on my case about, <gasps> you know, why didn't you introduce yourselves properly? Yada, yada, yada. Well, Chase, because it adds time to the podcast and you get mad when we record for four hours. Uh, I don't think this will be that long. Um, because Northanger Abbey, which is the book we're speaking about today, isn't quite as juicy as Pride and Prejudice. Uh, speak for yourself, there are scandals aplenty. Oh, there's plenty of scandals. Actually, I feel that this book, okay, this book is way more fun than Pride and Prejudice because there's so many scandals. And because Catherine is such a flibberty gibbet. That is such a good word for her. So let me let me put a little bit of history out there for people. If you're not familiar, Northanger Abbey is the earliest novel that Jane Austen wrote and completed, but it was published after her death. So she wrote it when she was, oh gosh, I think like 23. And she actually sold it to a publisher who then just never published it and just sat on the manuscript for 13 years until eventually she was like, hey, if you're not going to do anything with that, can I have it back, please? So she took it back and she wrote a little foreword for it. I don't know if your copy had this foreword. It it didn't. My copy. So this is how often I've read Northanger Abbey. My copy is in the omnibus. The like these these are Jane Austen's six novels all put together, so it didn't have anything. And now I've had to, I've started to look for a really nice copy of Northanger Abbey. Oh, look at that really nice copy that you have in your hand there. Yeah, it's real small. It's like an itty bitty mini copy. And I so I like the itty bitty. My favorite copy of Pride and Prejudice that I have is an itty bitty mini copy. I always called them purse books. Mm-hmm. But it's a pocket book, a book that you could fit inside the inside of a coat pocket. Yeah. Uh, but they're perfect for when you go to a bar and you don't want to talk to anybody. Exactly. Just read your book. Yeah. So the the advertisement by the authoress to Northanger Abbey. So this is what she wrote when she got the manuscript back. But it's still the book still was not published until after she died. Um, but she wrote this to tack on to the beginning of it. This little work was finished in the year 1803 and intended for immediate publication. It was disposed of to a bookseller. It was even advertised. And why the business proceeded no further, the author has never been able to learn. That any bookseller should think it worthwhile to purchase what he did not think it worthwhile to publish seems extraordinary. But with this, neither the author nor the public have any other concern than that some observation is necessary upon those parts of the work which 13 years have made comparatively obsolete. The public are entreated to bear in mind that 13 years have passed since it was finished, many more since it was begun, and that during that period, places, manners, books, and opinions have undergone considerable changes. No, I don't know. They might have. They might have. Looking 200 looking years 200 hence, years. Uh, uh, we, we don't know, but I, I feel like it would be the equivalent of when you read a book now, and they're talking about, like, MySpace, you know? And, and to dated. us, that's really glaring, like, 
nobody uses well, MySpace for anymore. Instance, we're gonna fat like fast forward fifty years from now. All of the books now that are like YA books that keep referencing Harry Potter directly, that is eventually gonna feel very dated. Yeah. That that it's making those specific mentions. So I can understand it. But in my mind, the books she mentions most often, because she mentions them a lot, Anne Radcliffe's books feel contemporary of Jane Austen. Right. And that's just our perspective from, you know, 200 years in the future. They all bleed together. They were all writing at the same time. They weren't, but it's fine. Um, but I like that little foreword because it kind of gives you a taste of what you can expect from this story. So when Jane Austen was about 13 years old, she wrote a complete history of England that is hilarious in how snarky and satirical it is. When she was younger, she wrote in that style a lot more. And it definitely comes out in this book because this book is so snarky and it is so satirical and it is making fun of those traditional gothic novels in fact if you uh ever want a taste of what her histories the only reasons to watch the mansfield park with johnny lee miller in it oh cassie's making a face like i just gave her a ham sandwich with uh no mayonnaise on it it's just <laughs> terrible is they take excerpts from Jane Austen's histories, from her letters and her early uh, epistle works between her and her sisters, and just, like, sprinkle it in. And it, it almost makes Fanny Price bearable. Yeah, the only reason to watch that movie, specifically that version of the movie, are for the excerpts from Jane Austen's early writings and for Johnny Lee Miller. I, yeah, but you can just go watch Hackers or something. Plunkett McLean. If you've never watched Plunkett McLean, that's a good Johnny Lee Miller. If you romp. want Johnny and Lee Miller and a period piece. If you want Johnny Lee Miller in Austin, you can just go watch the two thousand and something Emma. Yeah, because he plays I Knightley about in that. that one. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, it's I a good one. He played Knightley in that one. Yeah, that is a good one. I have often wanted to take and pick. Like, the Knightley from this movie and the Emma from this movie and, like, put them together. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a different thing that we can do at some point. Oh, that would be a great ostentatious episode. Let's argue for which rendition of the characters best matches our idea of them. I'll make a note of it and we'll come back to it. Because I want to ask you this question before we get into talking a little bit about plot. Um, What is your... You said you haven't read this one very often. So... Personally, this is my favorite Jane Austen. I absolutely love Northanger Abbey. Um, But I know that I'm in the minority. So I'm curious what your history with the the novel is. So I read it to complete a set. That's why I read it. I have talked about it before that I had this weird idea when I was in high school that you had to uh, be well-versed in the Western canon you had to have read, be well read, to uh, make friends and influence people in college. And that's, that's not, that's not true. No one's read Lord Jim. No one gives a fuck if you have any idea the plot of Northanger Abbey. But I read it and I completed my set. 
Um, and then I just kind of discounted it. I think at the time I hadn't read enough gothic novels for it to really connect. And, and the love story in this is not as uh, swelling violins as it is in other ones. Like in uh, Pride and Prejudice, Darcy and Elizabeth and their their realization of their love is this like build up and this climax and it's amazing and it's great. Uh, and that's not what happens in Northanger Abbey. And it's, it's much more realistic. Um, I, I mean, despite his need of a little slap in the mouth. What? We do not slander Henry Tilney on this podcast. We do. We will. We will. will not. I will not permit it. I will not allow it. But Henry Tilney is not overly romantic. He's not overly romantic. I will give you that. And you can see some of the aspects of this novel in her other novels, like Edward Ferris coming later uh, and there being misunderstanding. Yeah. So, yeah, so this book was really written to kind of satirize gothic novels, which were these stories of castles and 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 dark happenings and the supernatural and everything was like like think twilight but pushed to like extremes what is it called crimson peak is an excellent modern example maybe less incest but <laughs> right but you still it's you never know if it's a ghost or if it's if it's something else and it, it, there's always a wind whistling through the basement and um, yeah and for me it's it's interesting what you you were talking about earlier with it all seems like it happened at the same time the brontes were writing like 50 years after jane austen died and but but their novels to me are very much what jane austen was satirizing with this novel yeah <laughs> so like i watched jane eyre miniseries in like 2006 for the first time that was my first time encountering that story and i'm sitting there the whole time going i swear to god if there's vampires in this i'm gonna be so mad there's no vampires so if you think that vampires might show up in your story at some point like chances are it's the kind of story that jane austen was making fun of in this novel so she she spends a lot of time uh enjoying Anne Radcliffe's works, Miss Radcliffe's works, Mrs. Radcliffe's works, Mrs. Um, specifically, The Mysteries of Udolpho, which I have since read, but I hadn't read at the time I read this book to begin with, and I wouldn't read it until much later. Uh, and it is, it's fantastic, first of all. Um, but yeah, you're not quite sure at any moment you could open a drawer and the secrets of the universe are revealed to you. Yeah. So our main character is Catherine Moreland. And I got to say, I think that this book has a first line to rival Pride and Prejudice. I think the first line of this book is really 
a standout wonderful line because it is no one who had seen Catherine Moreland in her infancy would have supposed her born to be a heroine. My coffee cup at work is covered in first lines. This line is on my coffee cup and not the first line of Pride and Prejudice. That's fantastic. I love it. And the whole first chapter just introduces us to, hey, this is our main character. And I know she doesn't look like much. Like, she doesn't come from a tragic background. Her her family uh, loves her and is warm and welcoming. Her mother didn't die tragically in childbirth. And it's all Uh, lamenting. It's written as if she's lamenting the fact that she has no... No thing. Like she's really normal, but I promise this is going to be an interesting story. And I got to say that it's not often that a third person omniscient narrator is a whole character on their own. Oh, yeah. But it is very much true for this novel. Also, a whole mood. The narrator of Northanger Abbey is a whole mood. And I think that point right there is why every adaptation to film has fallen flat. Yes. Because without that humorous narrator pointing out all of the ways that Catherine is ridiculous, you think that, uh, I, I don't know, she comes across as the character from Sandition, who's just, you know, kind of dumb, making poor choices. Yeah. And and I like the 2008, 2009 oh, no, Northanger Abbey. It's good. Um it's good, but I, I agree. I wish that this narrator was represented a little bit more because it's they have her at the very beginning, but they don't really have her anywhere else. But I I flagged my copy um, with some of my favorite little bits that this narrator like will just stop the story to say. Um, and I remember I read this in high school because Jane Austen was my study author uh, senior year, which means I just read my way through her canon uh, over the course of my my senior English class. And I remember having to keep a log as I was reading of my reactions to this book. There is a point where she, Jane Austen goes on a page and a half long diatribe against authors who belittle reading novels in their novels. And it is fantastic. It's one of the best things I've ever read. She's like, this is not a book where I am going to, you know, poo-poo my main character for daring to read novels. Why do authors do that? You want people to read novels. You write novels. It's your livelihood. Stop demeaning it. And it's fantastic. It There is a letter, a level of meta-literature that goes on in this book that is fabulous. Alright, it's so great. But the plot. The plot. The plot. This, yes. this by the so, way, is the reason we end up with four-hour podcasts. It's true, because... There's just so much wonderful things to talk about. But the plot is something's got to happen to make Catherine into a heroine. And what's going to happen is that her wealthy next door neighbors, the Allens, Allens, are going to Bath because Mr. Allen has a gouty foot and the waters of Bath will heal him. And they have decided to invite Catherine along because she's 17 now and she should see some of the world. Um, and so they show up and they're like, can we take her to bath? And her parents are like, sure. Why not? Kathy, behave yourself. So don't get into trouble. They go off to bath and it is an adventure. Harrowing adventure. Not really. They just get there. But Mrs. Allen, if she hadn't taken Catherine with her, can you imagine what she would have done every single day? She is walking up and down the streets of Bath, sighing and lamenting that they don't know anybody in Bath. 
Our introduction to her, again, loving the narration. Mrs. Allen was one of that numerous class of females whose society can raise no other motion than surprise that there being any men in the world who could like them well enough to marry them. I would imagine if left to her own devices with Mr. Allen, he'd have not come back from Bath. <laughs> right. He'd have died. He'd have drowned himself in the bath. <laughs> and, and... What I love from the get-go of her going to Bath is the constant balance of this novel, which is Catherine's expectations of an event compared to the reality of the event. And it's always disappointing. It's always disappointing. So this is going to be an adventure. It's going to be exciting. She's going to be out in society. Maybe a handsome stranger will ask her to dance. But what actually happens is that it's really crowded. It's hot. It's unpleasant. They don't know anybody. And so they sit there the whole evening without speaking to anybody except each other. And then they go home. I have never read a better description of what I actually think a ballroom would have felt like. Because... Jane Austen find like she talks about being pressed body to body about feeling like you're being birthed into the dancing room and there's nowhere to dance and everything's hot and everything's terrible and that you're sweaty and there's no air and they kind of look over the crowd of people and they see that there's dancing and she's like no 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 we'll just retire to the retiring room which is also crowded with people yeah and so eventually on one of these nights of going out, the MC who is in charge of these dances and in charge of like introducing people introduces them to a young man named Henry Tilney. Well, first, I believe something that gets spilled on. That's only in the movie. The movie swapped the order of things. Does it happen later that he starts talking about the muslin? Yeah. So in the movie, they have Henry run into like physically run into mrs allen and she's worried that he's torn a hole in her sleeve and he starts talking to them even though he shouldn't because they haven't been introduced but in the novel itself he's actually introduced by the mc first and then they talk about muslim and then they talk about muslim later but they meet henry and henry is this teasing jovial laughing young gentleman who Always seems to be just a little bit making fun, but always with the best intentions and with a good heart. He's got a sassy mouth on him. He's got a sassy mouth. And that's why I love him, Beth. Sassy mouth. And so he dances with Catherine, but he's asking her, he's like, we have to, we have to have conversation appropriate to the dance. So I have a list of questions that I have to ask you. And regardless of what your answer is, I have a list of responses I have to give. And once we're through that, then we can be rational and we can talk about whatever we want. And Catherine doesn't really know what to make of him because this is not what she, you know, was ever led to expect dancing with a gentleman would be like. This is something Jane Austen makes fun of often, though. This, like, talking by rules during mm-hmm. a dance. So clearly it's come up for her multiple times and she thinks it's super weird and funny. <laughs> yes, because Elizabeth and Darcy have a similar conversation at one point during a dance. Um Mrs. Allen is enamored of Henry Tilney because he identified the <clears throat> the cost of the fabric of her gown. He understands <coughs> muslin. Oh, yes. And and, Mr. and Mr. Allen could never be bothered to even know one dress from the next. And therefore, he can do no wrong. No. 
Um, but the next night, Catherine looks for him at the dance and she can't find him. He's gone. He's disappeared. But there's a weird lady staring at him. Or I think that's in the bathhouse. At one point. At one point. Um, so one of the- We finally run into somebody in this town that Mrs. Allen knows. So in case you don't know, Bath has a series of things that you have to do in it, apparently. And there is a room that is the tea room that you go to, and you drink the waters, or tea, and then you walk around the room a lot. Like, a lot. And you sign your name in a book so that people know that you were there. And so Catherine goes every day and checks to see if Mr. Tilney's name is there. And she's so disappointed. But weird ladies staring at them and eventually settles over and goes, Are you Mrs. Allen? And Mrs. Allen's like, Yes. And? (laughs) And so she introduces herself. This is a woman named Mrs. Thorpe. And they're old school friends, which is great because it means like their families can now associate with each other. So how did she which, know her married name was Alan if they hadn't seen each other since school or heard of each other since school? Um, Facebook. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I forgot about Bath Facebook. <laughs> Facebook, yeah. Um, so Catherine is introduced to Mrs. Thorpe's daughters, the eldest of whom is called Isabella. And it turns out that Isabella knows Catherine's older brother, James. James is actually really close with the Thorpe family. He's best friends with the oldest son of the Thorpes, John. And he and Isabella have had a little flirtation going on since he stayed with them at Easter. And my question is, like, I don't know that I was super close with my brother's college friends, but, like, I knew who they were. So, yeah, I know all of my brother's friends. I knew them when I when I, because I, especially when I lived at home. I had no life. I wanted to know what he was doing, and he wasn't even that popular. Yeah, I I find it hard to believe that he would have never written to his sister about her. Or even to his parents, just about like, hey, I'm going to spend Easter holiday with this family. With the, the Thorps. Now, it's entirely so- possible that he did. And that they told Catherine, but Catherine was too busy reading a book and making daisy chains and thinking that mm-hmm. at any moment she could be walking down a hill and a man's horse would go lay him and she would have to save him. Right. Um, Sorry. It's entirely possible. She was caught in a daydream. But we get this description of how after one afternoon together, Catherine and Isabella are as close as sisters. Thick as they. Things. Thick as thieves. They like all the same things. They were made and meant for each other. It's they're the best friends that anyone could ever imagine have having. Which is what and she tells Isabella all about Mr. Tilney. Uh and uh, James comes to town and they're all united and it's a good, happy, fun time. Except for one fucker. John Thorpe. God, okay. Of all of the terrible people that have been, like the Mr. Collins. He is not worse than Henry Crawford. Yes, he is. No, he's not. All right. A while ago. You and I will fight about that later. We will. We will. Because you know that I love Mr. Crawford. There was a Facebook. There's a Facebook Jane Austen group that I belong to. 
And they put up this picture of like all of the rakes and they're like, who would you marry, date and whatever? And I'm like, um, well, I'm going to kill Mr. Collins because I can't <laughs> not even for a second. Uh, something with someone else, but I'd marry Mr. Crawford. I'd marry Crawford because I bet he's a lot of fun. You just got to keep him away from his sister. So John Thorpe is one of these characters the worst. who, if you were to modernize him, he would be that guy who will not shut up about his car. Regardless of what the conversation is, he will find a way to tell you about his car. He will find a way to tell you about how, what a great deal he got on it. He will find a way to tell you how cool it is. It's his defining characteristic. It's, I would say it's more like the guys who talk about Bitcoin now. Like, I do not. Ugh, maybe. Like, I can't... But what you what starts to emerge as we read these interactions that Catherine has with the Thorps is that they are very kind of two-faced and insincere. Um, they're always saying one thing but meaning something else and then scolding or ridiculing Catherine for when she doesn't understand or when she gets it wrong. And there's a lot of weird gaslighting that happens in her conversations with them, too. There is. Because, like, there's a scene where James and Isabella eventually get engaged and there's a scene where Isabella is telling her about it and she starts the conversation by saying, oh, but you'll know all about this already. I've seen you watching us with that knowing look in your eye. You already know what my news is, you sly thing. And Catherine's like, I I have no idea what you're talking about because you literally just started the conversation. Like, I have no clue. And she's like, of course you know that we're engaged. You've known it all along. Don't lie to me. And Catherine's like, I'm, I'm not. I really don't I'm know. Not, I'm not lying. I really didn't know. And so they're constantly making her doubt things that she knows to be true, both like actual pieces of information, but also how she should behave and how she should be interacting with people. And it starts off the social cues that Catherine is missing from being young and being sheltered. Isabel is there to help guide her, to show her, to, the, you know, oh, you can't dance with that man too many times. You, you know, don't be seen doing this. Don't be seen doing that. And then it comes to the point where uh, you see her start trying to teach the social cues that make Isabella an unfortunate character. And it's yeah. it's all from her mom. Like, there is a, a scene after James and Isabella get engaged. James goes back to his parents to tell them of the engagement and to find out what their father will give him. What kind of living. James is young as well. He's still in school. So their father gives him a living once he graduates from college, university, whatever you want, Oxford. He's in Oxford. Yeah. And he'll have a living, which was probably intended for him all along. And it's going to be 500 pounds a year, which is... A no small sum of money. I don't think. I don't really know. But who knows? Who knows? It's not 20,000 pounds of Mr. Darcy, but it's it's still a good, I think, a decent amount. They could have lived very happily. And Isabella even says so. <clears throat> but then, in a dance of gaslighting, she starts with, well, I'm sure your father would have done more if he could have done more. Not that I would ever want more. 
But it would be so much nicer if your brother was given what he was actually worth. But you know all about that. So, and when Catherine gets mad about that, going, hey, my dad is doing everything that my dad can do. Like, don't disparage my father for this. Then immediately Isabella goes, oh, it's not about the money. It's it's about the two years that we have to wait before I can get married. That's why I'm angry. That's why I'm upset. So she's constantly saying these things and then gauging Catherine's reaction and then altering how she's going to say everything it's very, falls into place. And the narcissism, mm-hmm. like it's very, she's a narcissistic character. Everything is about Isabella. Everything that she's doing, um, the way she mimics Catherine, the way she uh, kind of leads James in, she's performing. Yeah, there's... There's another scene where they're like, they're in the pump room together and she goes, oh, there's these men over in the corner that are staring at us. Let's leave so that we don't have to, you know, deal with them anymore. And so they walk out and she asks Catherine, she's like, are they following us? And Catherine goes, well, they followed us outside, but now they've turned and they're going down another street. So we're free of them. And Isabel's like, great, let's go to this shop over here. And Catherine's like, won't that put us directly in the path of those guys again that you just said you wanted to get away from? And Isabel's like, Fiddle- why are you worrying about that? Fiddle dee dee, I won't let them ruin my time. It reminds me of Scarlett O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Where it is all a performance to get people to look at her. Yes, absolutely. And, like, what what occurred to me strongest when I was reading the novel this time is that Catherine is not an idiot. She's not silly. She's not unintelligent. She's just innocent and sheltered because she's grown up in the country with this straightforward, honest family who doesn't engage in guile, who doesn't engage in this kind of like game of what are you really saying? She's never been around that before. She's naive, but she's not an idiot. And it was really fascinating for me to watch how the characters around her reacted to that reality of who she was. So you have James, her brother, who condescends to her constantly for not knowing how the world works and for being silly and how like, oh, it's so typical of you that you wouldn't understand this. You have the Thorps who constantly take advantage of her innocence and her trusting nature And then you have the Tilneys, you have Henry, and you have Eleanor, who's Henry's sister, who want to protect, they want to guide, they want to teach, but they also want to help her maintain that goodness that's inherent in her character. And she genuinely wants to believe the best in people. And so they're constantly trying to figure out how do we break the reality of the world to Catherine in a way that doesn't shatter what is really the most admirable thing about her, which is her ability to see the good in everything and believe the best in everybody she meets. And Eleanor, uh, let's not sleep on that character. She is the antithesis. Oh, I love her. She's the antithesis of Isabella. She's just the exact opposite of it, where Isabella's always trying to shine all of the light on herself. Eleanor is, she's not like a shy violet or a fading flower or anything. She just doesn't need it she just yeah. wants to be her and she's calm she's comfortable and she's with who she is yeah mm-hmm. and and isabella i think is not comfortable with who she is and needs constantly to be validated to feel like she has worth 
whereas Eleanor has an inherent understanding of her own worth. And it takes Eleanor and um, Catherine a couple of meetings to become close, but as they become close, it becomes very lasting. Yeah, so the the basic events of, like, the middle fourth of this novel um, are just showing you, the reader, the differences between the Tilneys as a family and friends to Catherine and the Thorpes as a family and friends to Catherine. So there's constantly these situations with these miscommunications where Catherine will make plans with the Tilneys and then the Thorpes will show up the next day and be like, we're going to go do this thing. And Catherine's like, I have plans. So the Thorpes are like, forget them. Forget them. There is, and it's a scene in the book that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. So John Thorpe has a coach or a carriage or something like that, that he wants to show off. And he wants to go out to um, this old ruin of a castle that's outside of town. And so he's trying to make plans so that he can be alone in his phaeton, probably. I don't really know the difference between them. So that he can be alone with Catherine and James can be alone with Isabella in his carriage, phaeton, cart. Who cares? Horses are drawing. And Catherine's like, no, no, no. I've made plans to go walking tomorrow. I can't go with you. I'd really love to. Could we go a different day? And they're like, no, it has to be tomorrow. Has to be tomorrow. Why does it have to be tomorrow? I already have plans. No, just tell them. Tell them that you're not going. I'm not going to tell them that I'm not going. And John Thorpe, like... James and Isabella are talking to Catherine. John Thorpe, like, disappears from the scene. He has gone to Mr. Tilney's and told him that Catherine was canceling their plans. And the thing is, that's the second day. So the first time that it happens that they want to go to the castle, she's supposed to go walking, but they're not going to go walking if it rains. But it was raining and then it cleared up. So she doesn't know if they're coming or not. And then the other three come up and they're like, we're going to go do this adventure. And she's like, no, I can't. I'm waiting for the Tillanese and I don't know if they're going to come. And Thorpe's like, oh, no, no. I just saw them in a carriage driving in the opposite direction. He lies to her specifically. And she's like, oh, well, okay, I guess if they're not coming, it was weird that they wouldn't tell me. And they all jump on that. Like, yeah, it's their mistake for not keeping you informed. How dare they treat you that way? I give give a little bit of room for the fact that it had been, like, they mentioned in the book. It had been raining. She didn't know. It was two hours or something after their appointment. I wouldn't be sure if somebody was going to show up. Yeah. And so I don't feel like Catherine did anything wrong by deciding to go. But the Thorpes lying. They lied. And so as they're driving... She, they drive past the Tilneys walking to her house to pick her up. And when she says, John, those were the Tilneys. You were wrong about what you saw. Stop the carriage so I can get out and keep my engagement with them. He literally starts driving faster so that she cannot get out until they are too far away for it to be worth her while. And so she, the scene that you were talking about is the next day when she's made – she's apologized to Eleanor and she's explained what happened. She's explained the misunderstanding and rescheduled 
their walk for later. And then the others come up and they're like, oh, hey, we're going to go do our thing again. And she's like, no, I absolutely can't. Like this time I really can't. And that's when John Thorpe disappears, goes to Eleanor to say, oh, hey, Catherine actually forgot she had plans with us. And I I admire Catherine so much because when he comes back and he's like, it's all taken care of. She's like, absolutely not. And they're literally trying to physically hold her where they are. And she like breaks loose from them and follows Eleanor to her house and like rushes past the footman. I wouldn't be stuck in their house to burst into the door and be like, no, they were lying to you. I promise I want to spend time with you. Please don't judge me based on John Thorpe. Can I can I make that into a t-shirt? Don't judge me based on John Thorpe. <laughs> right. At least I'm not John Thorpe. That should be. At least I'm not John Thorpe. That's what Wickham's um, shirt should say. At least I'm not John Thorpe. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh so yeah, you just you get in the middle part of this this story, we just get a lot of these events over and over again that show to us the reader. The Thorpes are not good people, the Henrys are the Tilneys are good people. <laughs> Maybe. Kind of. Well, they're probably good. So let's add another Tilney to the group because that can't go wrong, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So third Tilney. Two Tilneys. We'll add two Tilneys. We'll add two more Tilneys. So the father, Henry Tilney's father, is General Tilney. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with his elder brother, Captain, Captain Tilney. Tilney. Also known as Frederick. Yep. So General Tilney comes to town and he is delighted to meet Catherine. Which well, is very strange to his children. And I love those scenes because every time the general meets Catherine, he's like all ease and grace and praising her and praising the Allens. And you just get these pieces of narration about Henry and Eleanor in the background looking at each other going, what the fuck is happening right now? And then one, what is happening? One day, Big Brother shows up and he is an asshole. He is. So this is after Isabella and James have gotten engaged and James has left to go back home to tell his parents. And Isabella is telling Catherine, I'm only here at the dance tonight to be with you. I'm not going to dance. You know that my heart is 40 miles away. And so... Which is, by the way, the distance we are apart, just so you know. It's true, yeah. My heart is also 40 miles away, Beth, with you. <laughs> but Sorry, I mean, so oh, how sweet. Henry introduces Catherine to his brother, and his brother asks, you know, will your friend be willing to dance with me? And she oh, goes, oh, goodness. no, I'm really sorry. She's got a very particular reason to not dance. Um, I really am sorry. I hope that's okay. And he and the goes next thing she knows, and asks anyway. And and Isabella dances with him. Isabella says yes, and she goes and dances. And later when Catherine's able to catch up with her again, she's like, oh, I know. You must be wondering. I, I said no as long as I could, but he wouldn't leave me alone. So sure. I had to dance with him. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. So Isabella mm-hmm. and the captain uh, are seen often in each other's company while James is gone. And having weird conversations about like i wish your heart was unengaged my spirit is independent like all this kind of stuff that Catherine is sitting right there for and oh yeah it was something yeah i wish your heart was as independent and unengaged as your spirit 
Yeah. And she's talking to Henry. And this is, again, this is one of those examples. She's talking to Henry. She's like, I understand that your brother must be very in love with my friend. But how can he not understand that she's engaged to my brother and he's going to be causing pain to both of them? And Henry's like, oh, sweetie, how do I explain to you that all my brother wants to do is fuck your friend and and doesn't care about anything else? (laughs) And he he does give a little like, well, I'll tell you one thing. She's not marrying my brother. Exactly. And at the end of the day, I can't tell you more about how I know this. They're not getting married. You don't have to worry about her being a Tilney. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but the the general decides it's time to quit back. It's time he, to leave. He can't ever stay the full, I guess, six weeks. If you, you have to stay six weeks. He can't ever make it the full six weeks. So he wants to leave. And Eleanor... Um, I think she was going to ask Catherine, but she doesn't even get the chance because the captain or the general's like, you are so wonderful, Miss Moreland. Please follow us to our ancestral home. Yeah. So he invites her to stay as a companion for Eleanor at Northanger Abbey. And that is how you make it three quarters of the way through a book before you introduce the titular item. (laughs) True. Just so you know, as soon as I, so I was listening to this on Audible, and I heard the phrase Northanger Abbey, and I'm like, huh, well, look at that. It's exactly like three quarters of the way through this fucking book. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't come up until fairly late in the game. Yeah. So. And of course, Catherine cannot say no. As soon no, as she hears the word Abbey. She's so like, no, I, I have to, I have feel to go. like. Have to go. We've we've kind of forgotten a little bit of this over dramatization of her imagination because she's gotten swept up in uh how fucking awful John Thorpe is mm-hmm. and the captain and Isabella and all this kind of stuff and she hears Abby and she goes Surely there's something there. An adventure must wait. I have to go to the Abbey. The whole time she's been in Bath, there have been these little, like, nuggets kind of dropped to pique her interest, mostly by the Thorpes, before she knows not to trust anything they say, where they they just, they're like, there's something was really mysterious about the mother's death. Something seems off about the family to me. And Eleanor And it's just like these little, and they don't have any details at all. Yeah. But Eleanor, um, it's it's known that Eleanor wasn't there when her mother died. Yeah, that comes up a little bit more later. But on the way to the Abbey, she spends about half the drive with Henry alone in the, the curricle that they're driving while Eleanor and the general are in another carriage. Cur- and the general arranged that. He was like, you should ride with my son. And again, Henry and Eleanor are both like, this is weird, dad. What are you doing, Dad? Like, he is very much setting it up that he would like her to marry his younger son. Yeah, that's... 100%. And so they have this conversation as they're driving, and she's like, what can I expect from your home? And I love this conversation so much, because Henry's like, oh, here's what you can expect. The housekeeper, old Matilda... 
will escort you to a room that is far away from the rest of the the living quarters. And in your room, there will be a chest that is too heavy to be moved. And on one night, there will be a storm. And by the lightning illuminating, you will find an old cabinet with a secret hidden drawer. Inside the drawer is a manuscript that holds the secrets of, like, and he spins this whole ghost story for her. And she's playing it up as well. Like, she's sitting there going, I know you're kidding. I think you're kidding. I hope you're not kidding. He And he is an admitted novel reader. So he mm-hmm. is just playing into the tropes of what he knows. And I have been on that drive with a guy and it's been hilarious. Like, yeah. this is good flirting. This is good flirting. Yes. This isn't this sassy is talk. Fantastic. This is good flirting. So and <laughs> so he he tells her that the house has secrets. All houses have secrets. His is no That's different. all we'll say about it. Ours is no different. They get to Northanger Abbey. She needs to change for dinner. They're running behind schedule, and the general is, like, very particular about the schedule. So she wants to explore her room, but there's not time for it. But she does notice that there is a chest at the foot of her bed, and it is too heavy to open. <laughs> Just like Henry said. And so again, here now in the second half of the novel, we get this constant pull between Catherine's expectations and the reality of the situation. So she's convinced that there's some secret in the chest. There's not. It's just got a bunch of quilts in it. And Eleanor says when she comes in, she's like, oh, that thing is so old and heavy. We just tried to shove it in a corner to get it out of the way. So I hope it's not in your way. Well, and she tries. There's a lock on it or like a place for a key to go. And she's trying to open it and she assumes the lock and there must be a secret key somewhere. And Eleanor comes in and she's just like, kick, kick, nudge and lifts the lid. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's a storm one night. The first night she's there, there's a storm and she sees a cabinet in the corner of the room that matches Henry's description. And she goes and she opens it and all the drawers are empty. And she's like, the drawers can't be empty. But then she finds a secret hidden drawer and there is a scroll of paper in it. But then her candle goes out so she can't read it. And in the morning, she's like desperately opening it to see what the secret is. And it's like, it's old laundry bills. <laughs> and So the cabinet, I love the fact that they describe it. It's, it's of Japanese design. It is black lacquer and yellow. Could be gold, maybe. And she loves it. It's beautiful. It's great. And then after uh, she finds just that it's laundry bills, later they're talking about decor. And she goes, yeah, I just don't like, ja- I just don't like Japanese cabinets. <laughs> and after these two incidents, she's like, that's it. I'm not letting my imagination run away with me anymore ever again. Seriously, I'm done. And then like the next day, she's getting the tour from the general and he's taking her through and, and he's being very odd in how he describes his home because he's constantly comparing it to, it's like, he takes her into this huge dining room and he's like, I know that this can't be even half as impressive as the Allen's dining room. And Catherine's like, um, the Allen's dining room is like a third of the size of this. What are you talking about? He's like, well, I suppose their room must be the perfect size for absolute happiness. 
And he's like, he's constantly comparing his home to what the Allen's house must be. And Catherine's like, I don't understand what's going on. Why do you keep talking about that? He takes her through all of the best furnished rooms. Mm-hmm. All of the height of modern. And she's like, this isn't what I want. I want to go see the creepy old nun cells. Take me to where the Abbey was. And she finally gets like into the cloisters and she sees and it's just. It's storage. It's just storage. And they're walking. They're walking back through. And there's one door. And she's like, what's in that door? Can I go in there? And he's like, no, never. You can never go in there. And like turns on his heels and stomps away. It's very dramatic. And later she's talking to Ellen and she's like, what was that about? And Ellen is like, oh, that's the wing where our mother lived. That was where her rooms were. And that's when we find out that Eleanor wasn't at home when her mother died. And it was very sudden illness and very mysterious. And then, of course, Catherine's imagination starts going into overdrive again. And she and has she's like, the general as a murderer. She is convinced that one of two possibilities is true. First, the general killed his wife and covered it up. Or the general did not kill his wife staged her death and is hiding her somewhere in the abbey eleanor promises to take her into her mother's room and starts to she is trying yeah but gets stopped again later by the the general general again and it's clear that that both eleanor and henry are a little afraid of their father like he's very dictatorial you know when he says jump, they jump, and they don't do a lot to kind of and there's, stir the waters. There's a nice moment in her, maybe a week that she ends up being there. There's a nice moment where the general goes away. Mm-hmm. And they are able to enjoy just Henry and Eleanor and Catherine. And it's they talk about how calm it is and how fun and loving. Uh, and then the general, if he's going to come, yeah, and everything's terrible again. And Henry's in and out because Henry is like 26 years old and he has a job. He's a pastor. And so he's got to spend some time in his parish. So he's back and forth between the two. And at one point they go out to his parish um, to see where he lives. And Catherine absolutely loves it. And the general's like, hmm, good. I'm so glad that you enjoy this home that needs a woman's touch. Excellent. (laughs) But Catherine is obsessed with the death of Mrs. Tilney and she knows that something sinister is going on. And so she sneaks away by herself to go investigate the room. And while she's in there, she gets caught by Henry. And he does give her a little bit of a dressing down. He does. And I think validly she's because because he's like what are what are you doing at first he's just like cautious he's like hey um can i ask why you're in this part of the house by yourself and she's like well eleanor was gonna show me but she couldn't and then she just starts babbling she's like well i just wondered about your mother's death because none of you were at home and it happened so suddenly and i thought maybe that your father and henry's like "Whoa, whoa 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 hang on Hang on. We're all Christians here. 
Like, it's one thing to read novels. It's one thing to, you know, talk about these stories, but this is real life. My father has been nothing but kind to you, at least. Like, how could you ever believe that this was true? Like, what kind of, of, like, intense imagination must you have? And he assures her that he was there when his mother died. His brother was there when his mother died. It was tragic. Their father was affected by it. And he's very disappointed in the fact that she let her imagination run wild and she couldn't tell the difference between fiction and reality. And it's a hard scene to read and it's a hard scene to watch. It is. Um, but I feel in the book, it they make up in the book in a way they don't in the adaptation. That's for heightened dramatic effect. In the book, they're able to come back together. Mm-hmm. And they have a nice moment where he's like, I'm still Henry. Like he's not bringing it up. He's still being him. He's just kind of letting yeah. it go. And he's like, I might have overreacted a little bit. Let's just move on. Yeah. They don't do that in the movie, but again, it's for the heightened kind of dramatic effect of what happens next. And what happens next is at mid-morning is what I took it as. No, it's like it's like after midnight. I thought it was like seven in the morning. It's after midnight. Yeah, so, it's she has to leave at like seven in the morning, but she gets this news at like midnight. She's told Eleanor comes to Catherine and says, I don't know how to tell you this. And Catherine's like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> and Eleanor's like. I. Have to have you go home now. My dad says you have to go home. Well, and Catherine had been kind of like, I've been here for like a week or two. I should go home. And Eleanor's like, no, no, no. You should stay through the end of the summer. Like, you should definitely be here for a full month. It'll be fine. And then this happens. And she first says, "Uh, my father has remembered an engagement that he forgot about. It takes the whole family away on Monday. And Catherine's like, oh, no, that's okay. I understand completely. I can leave. I can go home on Monday. That's all right. And Eleanor's like, no, you have to go Um, now. He's ordered the carriage for you, and he's not going to send a servant home with you. Ha. And that's a big deal. This is a young woman, 17 years old, who's been entrusted into the care of this family and is now being asked to take public transportation, a pretty hefty journey, with absolutely no protection. So, yeah, the carriage is going to take her to the post, where she will be able to ride then on the public post home or back to the islands home 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 yeah she's going all the way home and eleanor's like do you have money for the post and she's like oh shit no i don't even have money for the post so so eleanor gives her money but mr tilly but general tilly wasn't even yeah he was just get out of my house One important thing, while she's at Northanger, she does get a letter from her brother. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that because I tried to think about the Thorpes. Yeah, her brother James, who is like, hey, I just want you to know everything's at an end with me and Isabella. And I hope that you leave Northanger Abbey 
before her engagement is announced. And I think it's a really interesting choice to do that because through the whole novel, you have Isabella and you have James who are like looking down on Catherine because she doesn't understand how the world works. And then both of them have this same reaction to Isabella's dalliance with Frederick with, oh, now she's going to marry Frederick. Whereas the Tilneys were both like, mm, no, that's not going to happen. Yes, he he totally lied to you and used you. But yeah, she gets this letter from her brother. The engagement is off. He's convinced that Isabel is going to announce that she's marrying Frederick. And then she tells Eleanor about it. And Eleanor's like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Don't think you have to worry about that. Um, but then she gets a letter from Isabella a few days later. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry I haven't written. Um, I was hoping that you could maybe do me a favor. Things seem to have been left a little weird with me and your brother, and I'm not sure why. I think he, like, believes that something weird happened and now he won't talk to me. Like, you're my best friend, Catherine, and I know he really respects what you have to say. So if you could just, like, let him know how much I love him and miss him and uh, I'm looking forward to talking with him and getting married to him. And at this point, Catherine's like, that absolute lying bitch. I am not believing anything she says to me ever again. I don't like any of this. Uh, And so she is expecting when Eleanor comes up to her that she's going to tell her that that she was right. That that Captain Tilney is engaged, Mm -hmm. Isabella. And instead it's, get the fuck out of my house. Yeah, so she she gets on the post and she goes home. And she arrives and, she, and her parents are like, oh, that wasn't very nice of that man, but it's good to know you can shift for yourself. It's like, yeah, you seem to have grown up a lot this summer. We're real proud of you, Catherine. And good job. We'll just yep. chalk everything that happened with you and your brother in Bath up to some bad learning experiences and we'll move on from there. Well, didn't you guys have fun at summer camp with the Allens, huh? Uh, and they're willing to move on. Mrs. Allen's less so. She's like, oh, that man, his name. Like, I don't even know what you're going to do with his name, but she's going to do something mad with his name. She's like, I can't believe that his son turned out to be Ugh. such a horrible person. He understood uh, muslin. Of all things. Of all things. The Tilneys. And, and so what's what becomes odd when she's back home is that none of the Tilneys are reaching out to her to talk to her. Like, she doesn't hear from Eleanor. She doesn't hear from Henry. She even writes to Eleanor under the guise of, like, sending back the money that she was given for the post. Yeah. And doesn't hear anything. And she's like, that's weird. And she, But she refuses to believe that she misjudged them. Everybody around her is telling her, like, oh, well, we'll pick our friends better in the future. And she's like, no, I, Eleanor and Henry are good people. I am convinced that that is true. I don't understand what's happened. But I'm convinced that that's true. And then, who shows up at her house? Mr. Dashwood. I mean, Henry Tilney. No, wrong novel. Henry Tilney shows up at her house in a state of great agitation. He got back to the Abbey and found out what his father did and was like, Dad, (laughs) I was dating her. 
And, and so he, he jumps com- on his horse. He jumps on his horse and he came all the way to set things right with her parents and to apologize for the way that Catherine was treated and to explain what happened to Catherine. This and he's is come my with the favorite whole part. story. So John Thorpe, at one point in the novel, believed that he had a chance with Catherine, believed that they were as good as engaged. And while he was explaining to General Tilney who this girl was, he was doing his thing that he does and bragging about this thing that he had and about how she's the only goddaughter and heir of the childless Allens who have a massive fortune. And when they die, she will inherit incredible wealth. None of no, which was that, true. Yeah, not 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 true. And, and also, like, none of which was ever told to John Thorpe. At no point throughout the beginning part of this novel, there are several moments where the Thorpes are making mention of how rich the Allens are and how in favor the Morelands are with the Allens. And every single time it comes up, Catherine's like, uh, they just took me to Bath. They're our neighbors. Yeah, we have no expectations of them. I don't know where you're getting this, but, but it's wrong. But John Thorpe wanted to brag about what a good deal he got on this mare. Yep. <sighs> and so General Tilney believed that Catherine was an heiress and that was going to be a real good match for Henry. And while in London, I think, at some point he found out that Catherine was not an heiress and immediately accused her of lying about it, basically, even though at no point did she ever claim this. And in fact, every time he talked about the Allen's house, she corrected him forcefully. So he just came home and was like, no, no, gotta get out. So Henry comes and he's like, I know my dad's a dickhead. And I know my brother's a dickhead, but Eleanor is not so bad. And I'm a pretty cool dude. Um, do you want to, I don't know, get married? And Catherine's like, of course I do. Sweet. Um, now? Sounds great to me. And that's the book. It, that is the book. There's a little bit at the end about um, Henry is vowing never to speak to his father again. Sure, like, sure. Sure, I've sure, broken sure. with my father. I will not talk to him again. And the Morelands are like, uh, maybe you don't have to, like, get oh, his blessing or anything, but you should at least get his permission. Yeah, don't be so rash and hasty, young man. He's still your father. Go back and out there so, and tell him what you're doing. Then in, like, the last paragraph or two, we we get some weird Eleanor backstory about how there's this guy she was secretly in love with. And then, oh, all of a sudden, he ascended to title unexpectedly. And that put the general in a really good mood. So he was like, fine, if Henry wants to throw his life away on that Moreland girl, I guess he can. I don't know if it was just a weird comment that I read on the internet. Uh, or or if it was in the movie. But there has been illusions that the stack of laundry bills that she found were actually that gentleman's laundry bills. Uh, no, I think that stayed. is in the. I think that is in the novel. Is it in the novel? I think so. I knew it sounds like, like a thing I read. 
that it was his stack of laundry bills to begin with, which just mm-hmm. connects everything together. Yes. Uh, that this was the very gentleman whose negligent servant left behind him that collection of washing bills. Yeah. By which my heroine was involved in one of her most alarming adventures. Um, that's the kind of shit that sticks in my brain. Like, wasn't that a dumb fucking thing? The best reason to read this book is the narrator. Oh, it's fantastic. The narration is amazing. Henry Henry Tilney needs a smack in the mouth in a couple places. No, he doesn't. He teases her, and sometimes it is a little fur. I, I love Henry deeply. Um... I have loved Henry since I read this book the first time. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that reading his conversations with Eleanor reminded me so strongly of conversations that I had with my older brother all of the time. So that sibling dynamic was like very familiar to me. And that was one of the reasons I loved Henry as a character. Um, I will, he gets, he's got like a pedantic language hang up. I'll acknowledge that. But Eleanor, like, calls him out for it constantly. And every time he's getting a little too feisty, Eleanor is there to be like, Catherine, link arms with me. And we're going to leave this dumbbell in the dust and pay no attention to him until he starts behaving in a rational manner again. I do like a good rake. And he is a good rake. He's I good like at it. I the guy who can tease. Me too. Whatever. Henry Tilly's a good one. He's a good one. He's, he's a, a good, good one. one. I love him. He's my fictional husband. One of them. What? I have three. Who are the other two? Uh, Neville Longbottom is my first and foremost fictional husband. Should have known and, that. Yeah, you should have. It's fine. It's okay. And then Henry Tilly... And then uh, Hiccup from the How to Train Your Dragon movies. <laughs> but he looks, he looks Hiccup good. is basically hey, Chase. And so... He, like your real husband, looks like an adult male once he wears a beard. It's true. Um, But I love, I love Henry Tilney. Henry Tilney is my favorite Austin male. And I think it is because of the teasing. I think it's because of the playfulness. Because we don't see that playfulness from many of her other characters. I think the closest we get is Mr. Knightley. Mr. Light. Okay. So here goes back to that thing that I think we should do a show about Mr. Knightley in the book. He is a very judgy. Yes. He's a very judgy twat waffle. And he's like 30 years older than her. He's 16 years older than her, but 700 years older than her. Now, um, Captain Wentworth, however. He's a little teasy. He's nice and playful and romantic. Yeah, but he's playful in a mean way because it's against Anne. He's throwing his playfulness in Anne's face. For a minute. And then he's not. For a decent chunk of the book. Just while they're in Lyme. And who, what happens in Lyme stays in Lyme. Duh. Um, but yeah, so I really like this book. I like the snark of the narrator. I like the making fun of the overblown, overly dramatic kind of 
literature stories that everybody in high school seemed enamored with and I hated. So I think that's another reason why I, I really liked it. I used to identify a lot with Catherine when I was younger. I don't identify with her as much anymore, but um, I liked that she liked to read books and she had an imagination. And those are all good things. Those are all good things. I um, have downloaded Camilla because <laughs> they yeah. do talk about Camilla. Uh, I've never read that one. So, I mean, Catherine Moreland gave me that at least. So, yeah, so that's going to be an October read for me. So let's chat briefly about our our permapins. Okay. Things that we always talk about on this podcast. So we talk about language and how language is used. And I think we've covered a lot of that talking about the narration. Because that's really the strongest kind of a standout part of this, this novel. And it's very different than what Austin does in her other novels. Yes. Some other fun narration that I I tagged in case, you know, what we've mentioned so far isn't enough. <laughs> um, he looked as handsome and as lively as ever and was talking with interest to a fashionable and pleasing young woman who leant on his arm and whom Catherine immediately guessed to be a sister, thus unthinkingly throwing away a fair opportunity of considering him lost to her forever by being married already. That is hilarious to me. I, it, there's a definite a heightened language that just makes everything sillier. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a great thing to be able to do, to make the ridiculous mind of a 17-year-old girl seem even sillier through heightened language. It's wonderful. Because the mind of a 17-year-old girl is a stupid place to be. To come with a well-informed mind is to come with an inability of administering to the vanity of others, which a sensible person would always wish to avoid. A woman, especially, if she have the misfortune of knowing anything, should conceal it as well as she can. Yes. It's full of, it's full of wonderful little gems like that. Little witticisms. Little, uh, it's just fantastic. And again, page and a half diatribe about authors who belittle reading novels in their novels. What's our next just, permapin? Shakespeare next, Universe? Doesn't fit. <laughs> Doesn't, doesn't fit. fit into the, the no Shakespeare cinematic universe. No pirates. Um, Catherine would love it if there were pirates. No, we also always talk about the agency of women. Like all Jane Austen novels, the agency of women is paramount. Mm-hmm. That yes, there are times where a woman's choices are taken away based on social constructs. Uh, but in this book, we don't see what happens to Isabella. No. Uh, and we don't really know, although the adaptation, the movie, it really tries to make it seem as though she's taken to a party, seduced in a back room, and then just left. Left there. Yeah. So <clears throat> we don't know what happens to Isabella. We don't know if there's consequences for her actions of jilting, of being a jilt. Um, but... Jane Austen always talks about the fragility of a female's reputation. But at the same time, she always lets her heroines be the ones who are driving their own lives. Mm -hmm. And I love that Catherine tends towards 
her own agency, even in situations where she doesn't actually have a lot of power over the people around her. So like these scenes with the Thorps and with James, where they're trying to dictate her actions and they're sometimes forcibly dictating her actions. She always knows in her mind, this is wrong. This is not what I want to be doing. And at the first opportunity, she is getting away from that situation. And so even this character who is very innocent and very sheltered and very naive in a lot of ways still knows in her mind what she wants and what is right. It's Jane Austen, so Agency of Women is absolutely there. And I also really love her wide cast of characters showing us lots of different kinds of, of women as well. Yeah, there are. There are a lot of different types of women mm-hmm. in this. It's This is definitely like, it's an 8 out of a 10. Just, you're gonna like it if you read it. I'd say 9 out of 10. Sure you would. Um, I, I do think that there are some weaknesses to the story. I think the ending is a little rushed and abrupt. It's um, as if somebody was like, hey, <laughs> Jane, we gotta go. Put a cap <laughs> we on gotta, it. We gotta be done. We gotta be finished. Um, so, so yeah, the ending, I think, the last, like, chapter is a little, uh, abrupt. And there's some unclearness on timelines. Like, usually she's pretty good about keeping us updated on how much time has passed within a story. Yeah. But there's a little fogginess on time in the middle. But it's very much it's a first novel. It's Yeah. It's a hell of a good first novel. I hope my first novel sounds like that. Oh, gosh. The stuff I wrote when I was 23 was not this good. So, yeah. Um, and then, of course, our last pin to talk about, and we've already touched on it a little bit, is adaptations. So, so beyond the movie, beyond the, so, so there are two no, no, no. prominent nope. movies, except there's not, there's only one, because they made one in the 1980s where they supremely missed the point. So in the 80s, they played up, I have it, by the way, if you are interested, I bought it on VHS. Not interested uh, in that. Not interested. So I've not seen the whole thing. I got 20 minutes into it and couldn't do it anymore. She is running in a white nightgown through the battlements of an abbey with flashing lights showing the faces of the Tilneys at one part. And I'm like, this is, what the heck is happening? No. They filmed it like it was a gothic novel instead of making fun of gothic novels. So it's not humorous. And the point. It becomes boring then. Yes. The 2009 um, with J.J. Fields and a very young Felicity Jones and a very young Carrie Mulligan. It's one of the first things that those two ever did. Um, Carrie Mulligan is is a wonderful Isabella. She is a great Isabella. She really is. Um, That one, I really like that movie. I think there are some things that they could have done a little bit better in terms of like staying true to the narration. (laughs) But I love these scenes that they interpose as Catherine is reading these novels and imagining herself in place of the heroines and the hero is always Henry and the villain is always uh, John Thorpe or Frederick Tilney. And they're filmed like gothic with the lightning in the background and the like swooning against a tree in a nightgown. And those scenes are delightful. There's even when she is going to bath with the Allens. 
in the book she mentions what would happen if we were set upon by vagabonds only Mr. Allen with his foot to save us in the movie <laughs> there's a scene it, where she's set upon a scene by vagabonds right now where like it's it's in her mind and it's happening and it that is delightful that is delightful yeah. i'm glad that they did that and um, they do they do change some things around to kind of heighten the dramatic tension so in the movie Catherine believes when she's sent away that Henry was so angry with her that he told his father about her suspicions. Yeah. And she's like, that would have been justified. And she says that to Henry when he's there. And the scene at the end where he shows up and he's like talking to her mother and then her three younger siblings are like sitting in the window seat, like hanging on every word. There are so many kids in that house. So many kids. There's 10 canonically. Um, but eventually he's like, could I go call on the Allens? Could Catherine show me how to get to their house so I don't get lost? <laughs> and one of the little kids is like, you can, you can see it see from it. the window. It's and, right there. And You're the mom the is like, hush, Lucy. Mrs. And, Bennett would have had a field day. Uh-huh. So that movie is very well done, and I do recommend it highly. Um, I read a novel adaptation after I read this book. It's also called Northanger Abbey by Val somebody. And it was interesting because we, we've talked before about adaptations and typically when you're adapting a story, you are, you're boiling the story down to its main beats and you're you're looking to retell those beats so that you hit all the major points. This novel literally felt like somebody, the author went page by page through Northanger Abbey and just transcribed it in a modern setting. Like every single scene was there. Every single conversation was there in exactly the same order. It was... Mm. Meh. It was not great because she didn't do anything with it. And then the only time she strayed from the story was at the very end, where even though she set up this whole thing with, like, Catherine wasn't as rich as she was supposed to be, all of a sudden, out of the blue, it's like, John Thorpe told my father you're a lesbian and you were interested in Eleanor instead of me. And I was like, where, where the fuck did that come from? I don't necessarily mind that, but they hadn't set up anything about, like, the general being homophobic, or it was just like, well, if she's a lesbian and interested in Eleanor, then I'm not interested because I want her for Henry for some reason. And I was like, this is dumb. I don't like this. And by sticking that close to it, the weaknesses of the original novel translated over into the modernization as well. So that's a... It's lazy. That's it's, lazy. It's very, it felt very lazy. And I don't know really of any other novel adaptations that have been made of this story. Uh, well, there's the comic book. Marvel did a whole series of Jane Austen comic books. Okay. They're just graphic novels of the books. Yeah. So I just, I don't know of any. Um, I tried to do a quick search to be like, huh, is there any that are quick hit that I haven't seen? And Google, for some reason, thinks some Ashley Judd movie was. And I just read the description. Like, that has nothing to do with it. No. 
Um, there is, I will say, um, there are two literary web series adaptations of Northanger Abbey. Let's hear them. There is one called the Kate Moreland Chronicles. And I will be honest, I did not finish this one. I did not get more than like six or seven episodes into it because some of the choices that they made make me uncomfortable. Um, they make the mysteries of Udolpho a TV show that Kate is obsessed with, which is fine, but they make Henry Tilney like the main actor on that TV show and they meet at a fan convention and the only way that Kate knows him is from the show and from being a fan of him on the show. And that power imbalance makes me uncomfortable personally. And so I had a hard time watching that and I did not finish it. Um, it might get better. I don't know. But that was also right around the time when a bunch of like YouTubers were getting called out for having inappropriate relationships with fans. And so... Personally, it makes me uncomfortable, but if you've watched it and enjoyed it, then I'm happy for you. Um, the other one that I do really recommend is called Northbound, and it is just – they simplify the story quite a bit. It is Catherine who lives in a very small town in Virginia, and she wants to go to New York City for college, and she has to convince her parents to let her. And so she goes up for the summer before college starts. Um, to get to know the city. And that's when she stays with the Allens. And that's when she meets the Tilneys and she meets the Thorpes. And then it goes through her first semester um, at college. And General Tilney becomes one of her professors, one of her history professors. And some of the ways that they chose to modernize the story don't work super well for me. But I think that's true kind of across the board with Jane Austen modernizations. Because it's hard to find a modern interpretation that has the same stakes as a Jane Austen novel when choices for women were so limited and the question of who you married could be the deciding factor in whether or not you lived the rest of your life in comfort. But I really recommend it. You can find both of those on YouTube if you search for the the series. Um, I really like Northbound. I think it's well done. Um, I'm going to have to take a look at that one. It's not have... long. It's only 38 episodes. I think you can get through it in like a couple hours. Oh, well, good. I have to work in the morning, but I don't need sleep. <laughs> oh, I do need sleep. Okay. Yeah. Typically. Typically. But I don't know if a lot of other adaptations, there is a Wishbone episode. Of course there is. Yeah. Of Northanger Abbey. I, would... I have a memory of there being episodes of like Disney shows that are done in this very like uh, daydreamy mm -hmm. kind of venue, which I fear could be linked towards Northanger Abbey, but not even really. I can't think of anything that's really. Which is a shame because I think there's so much potential well, in this story. You're not doing anything tonight. Why don't you write it up? I'll tell you what. Um, the semester after I graduated, my favorite professor who I took several like specific seminars with 
offered a seminar on Jane Austen, and I was so mad that he waited until after I graduated to do it. I was so angry with him um, that I wrote up an outline for what my final project would have been if I'd been able to take the class, and I showed up at his office hours and just threw it on his desk and then left. So I have actually outlined how I would modernize and adapt this story, but it's very loose. Like, I know the basics of what I would do, but I don't know a lot of the specifics. November's coming. It's true. November is coming. NaNoWriMo. We'll see. Maybe. We'll see. Okay. Thanks for hanging out with me for another ostentatious. Yeah. Let us know. Hey, it's only an hour and a half, which is twice the length of our normal single podcast. Right. Exactly. It's it's not not four hours. hours. We say it is. It is longer than I thought we'd go, but hey, I love Jane Austen. Me too. And so we've done what? Three of these now. So we've got three novels left to go. Oh, yeah. We did do Sense and Sensibility. We did do Sense and Sensibility. That was the April Fool's episode. We should rip the band-aid off at some point. We shouldn't save Mansfield Park for last. Otherwise, we just won't ever do it. Exactly. Which is entirely okay. It really is. (sighs) Anyway, we have been Ostentatious, an offshoot of Shakespeare. I'm Cassie Greenlee. I'm Beth Roars. Thanks for hanging out and chatting Jane Austen with us. Heck yeah. The Ooh, moose out front. Oh yeah, sorry. Podcast over. Moose out front. Shut us hold ya. It's my favorite one of the send off. <laughs> it's way better than old dicks. And now that's the last thing they heard, Beth. No, that's the last thing they heard, Beth. Wait. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good night, friends. This has been a Ghostlight Media production.